welcome to the podcast, Josh. All right, thanks for having <laughs> me, man. So, um, how many how many years you have sober again? Uh, a little over two and a half. I got two sober December 2018. And what's your story? Like, what what was your drug of choice? Uh, it was alcohol, uh, for sure. I mean, and relationships, if we can count that. Yep. Yeah, we sure can. I've I've actually had a sponsee where he went over the steps with his ex's name instead of alcohol. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you literally can anything that makes yeah. your life unmanageable. Think oh, about sure. it. You know, you mean you have a podcast on the big book. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. you get it. Like, the word alcohol is only used once in the twelve steps, and it's in the first step. So as long as you take out alcohol and put in anything that makes your life unmanageable, you can do the steps on that. Oh sure, I did it with uh, Facebook. Ended up cutting out Facebook completely because of it, but yeah, I I read uh I read the uh, Recovery by Russell Brand and he breaks down just everything that you can apply it to. He, I, he's just a fun book, but that my sponsor and I are going through the steps that way right now. Nice. Yeah, I have that book. Nice. That, yeah, that's what I mean. Book. And we're on step. We just finished step two, and because um, we're not AA at my meeting center, and he yeah. wants to go through the steps, so I have that book and I got it in recovery, and I'm like, you know what, like. Let's do a little bit different. And so, yeah, we've been going through the steps. You know, What, what is step two? Would you like to be unfucked, right? Would you is like that... to be unfucked, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I read them off in my podcast because I figure, I mean, there's so many different versions of the steps. There's so many different ways. And that was, I'm honestly, if we can, I guess, go down that road, that, road, that yeah, was kind of, my break, that's kind of my breakthrough in the fact that I, I just didn't feel like a higher power was necessary for this stuff. Cause you can, you can apply the steps in different. There's so many different versions of the steps. There's so many different higher powers that you can choose. Then I, I felt like that meant you could choose no higher power, right? If it's, if it's not even subjective to a certain kind of faith, then no faith should be just fine as well. And then, yeah. you know, I find that there's fucking a hundred different steps out there, you know, same kind of idea of doing the inventory Doing, you know, doing self-care, figuring out how to how to actually have a conversation with yourself without being detrimental to your own, you know, character, and how to fix things. Like it's it's pretty much, you know, the meat it's of it. The way and to then, live and, life. Yeah, and then like you know, make sure that you're helping the next person that's struggling on the same shit. Yeah. Like it seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, being of service, you know, praying meditation, and like praying meditation doesn't have to be prayer like people think it is everyone thinks praying meditation is a sign of the cross and sitting on your knees at the end of the bed you know what i mean like prayer yeah. to me is just talking out loud with my subconscious you know well, what i mean that's i mean that is the big book version you know that's that's the problem with the the traditional big book and traditional aa is they can say they're not religious all they want but if you're in a meeting with the lord's prayer like that's as christian as you can get or you know catholic or whatever they don't do that like, everywhere though they it, don't it, they don't but the do group it. conscious is usually yeah. hard to fight against on that one, as I've experienced, because this isn't my first stint in sobriety. I, I was in, I was in sobriety for I was in AA for eight years before, and then again, uh, you know, a few years before that. So I've I've had plenty of experience in the program and, and been in, you know, I've started meetings, I've I've helped, uh, been on the the GSR, you know, I've gone to the, the big committee committee stuff, and uh, yeah, getting that taken out where you're not saying the Lord's prayer is a toughie. If it's been there for a while, people don't want to change that. And that's fine. Like, I've grown to just kind of accept that. But, you know, you speak of, like, the prayer thing having that kind of, uh, you know, ideal attached to it. And that's, I mean, well, yeah, because the book has Christian prayers in it. Like, the, the literature that's approved has Christian versions of prayer. So that's what that's what hits people the second they come in is, like, you better find Jesus specifically 
but we're not religious, you know? And that turns a lot of people off, man. Like, it turned me off for a while. I wouldn't oh, yeah, even, for step three, for step three, when I did my step three, I refused to say, let go, let God. And my sponsor's like, what do you, you, come on, you just, I need to hear you say, let go and let God for us to just move on a step forward, which is a way more important step. Like, this is easy. I just need you to say and believe it. And yeah. I, I, I said, no, I won't believe it. Yeah, I was like, this is easy. I just need you to I, believe in God. I was like, <laughs> I, I was like, I will, I will lean into let it be so hard. I'll get it tattooed on my arm, but I won't say let go and let God, but I'll say, let it be like the Beatles, because I connect more to that, and it's the same idea. And I'll commit to it so hard, it'll be tattooed on my arm next time you see me. And he was like, fine. That is absolutely fine. Just do that. Yeah. So, there it you is. You know, and that... It's yeah. right there. <laughs> Let it be. <laughs> so, yeah, I wasted of, no time. That kind of rigidity, you know, that kind of adherence and strict rigidity, and not... and Like, I get the, I, the whole sponsorship kind of process right like you you want to sponsor how you were sponsored if you can help it you know i i had the benefit of my sponsor my sponsor who took me through this last time he wasn't atheist or or even humanist but he was uh he was just non-religious he was he was an anti-religion religious guy and so we went through the book as it's written and um i saw the importance of that even though i wasn't going to really you know get into the god stuff um but he let me fucking work it out you know, every time a God thing came up or every time a, a, a Christian thing came up, we talked about it. He talked about it from his kind of anti-stance, and I talked about it from, like, just trying to understand where they're coming from. Because belief is powerful, and whether you believe in God or not, like, it's – there's people that believe that they can run faster than somebody else. If they believe it hard enough, they're going to fucking run faster than somebody else. Like, it's just kind of how that works. So it can be applied to anything, whether you're, you know, of a spiritual nature or not. So we talked about this stuff, and – you know, he came away a lot less, like, vehemently against religion. Like, he came away just like, okay, like, re religion's fucking weird, but I don't have to hate it. Like, I don't have to have this resentment. Like, we worked through his resentment. And that did a lot for me because he wasn't just, like, sponsoring me. Like, you do what I say, and you're going to stay sober. If you don't, you're going to drink. Yeah. Like, he wasn't doing that. He was He was learning with me. And that's yeah. what I think the purpose of this is. It's like, yeah, I'm supposed to help the next person, but I'm not I'm not their fucking parent. I'm not teaching them in a way that's like, you better do this or I, you know, if you're going to yeah. fucking die, man, I don't know what to tell you. Like that that old school fundamental kind of process doesn't work for me. Luckily, no, it, it seems that even AAs and organizations kind of move away from that. As the bottom raises and younger folks start coming in, that's the old is. folks, you know, they can sit in that <coughs> corner and be all upset that they, you know, as upset as they want, but the end of the day, people are staying sober despite all the bullshit they were saying you had to do. So, yeah, there's, there's, it depends on the area how many old timers are gonna find that run a meeting or not. Uh, you know what I mean? And by run a meeting, I don't mean they're a secretary or anything. I mean run the meeting over in the corner in their little yeah, yeah. like, you know, like the um the Muppets. You know, the two guys in the balcony. Yeah, that's any old timer that they're sitting together, mumbling together, just talking oh, yeah. shit. It'll be like and... a super positive meeting, and people will be sharing their experience, and he'll be like, I died twice before coming here. Life sucks. <laughs> I'll tell you all about... Yeah, yeah. It's like, dude, I'm sorry you went through that, but come on, man. Have you smiled since then? What the fuck are you doing here? Like, come on. Yeah. I go to, uh, on occasion, there's... um, I like real old school fundamental stuff. I don't like... I don't sit there and make fun of it. I try to learn from it if I can. Though there are funny parts, obviously, that I just can't fucking help, but, you yeah. know, like... Uh, I like but I like going to the inner city ones. 
Yeah, like, there's there's it, one here. It's called Scully's, and it um it's super old recovery there. Bill Wilson's been there a few times before he passed away. Uh, a couple of the other old timers. Uh, one of the the people that the person that gave the house over to the AA sort of organization that, that runs that kind of stuff um, was like one of the first, not the first hundred, but just after that. Very old recovery. So it's it is it is old 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 meeting style it's like how it was in the 40s like and it's such like the a Oxford trip. group meetings kind of yeah i mean <laughs> well by the 40s they were running their own aa style groups yeah. but there was like the three sections you know there was like the uh, the non-god group because there was some atheists that started the program there was the uh, the super dr bob uh super religious group and then there was the bill wilson kind of like mix of both and this is like definitely the fundamental God type, you know, Dr. Bob style. Mm -hmm. If it's not in the book, if it's not explicitly in the book, you better not even say it. Like, like you better only repeat the words that have come from the book as if it were holy text. And it's such a trip going to a meeting like that just to kind of get like a barometer, you know, because there's another meeting here where there's people that throw shit at each other. And like, when you're reading the preamble, like their job is to mess you up. And like, in order for you to, to even share, like they have this zombie leg that they pass around and throw at each other. There's a bunch of punk rock kids, you know, in there. And so there's just this level of absurd fun and it's hardcore sobriety. Like people that are there super, I mean, they're, they're working yeah. the program, but they're having fun in this meeting. And then you've got the other end where it's like, if you don't say the words as written, get out. It's like that in LA, LA, there's so many different groups like that are really, really strict big book. And then there's groups where, like, I used to go to this meeting in Venice all the time. Like, I got I got 15 tattoos in our front yard in Venice during meetings. And they were all done freehand by a muralist painter that's in the program. And she would hold meetings in her front yard. And she would just be drawing or doing tattoos. And we would just do a meeting. We'd go around a room. Someone would take a passage from the big book, read it, and what it meant to them. And then go around the circle, what it meant to everybody else. And that was a meeting. At the nice. end, we do Hell Satan, and instead of <laughs> instead of praying out, our pray out was Hell Satan. Nice. And <laughs> like my one year chip, I don't have it with me. She gave it to me, and it was hers, and it has a six and a six and a six, like around it. Nice. Like, and it's the only chip that I care about. Really, is that one right there? But yeah, it's stuff like that. Like it's some of the best sobriety. But it's just not traditional. We're in a front yard, and that meeting is still going on over three years now. Every awesome. Now it's an everyday thing. It used to be every Saturday. Now it's an everyday thing. They go there. She doesn't even live there anymore, but she kept the house for the meetings. That's awesome. And she yeah. changed it to Muck Recovery because uh, she's, a like I said, a famous muralist named Muck Rock, Jules Muck. Like yeah. my, my Bill Mary that I sent you, my Bill Mary is Jesus. She painted that for me. I have a bunch nice. of commissions that she's done, but I have like 17 tattoos also from her. That's awesome, man. And yeah, I met her at a meeting. She was talking and I was like, I want to know more. Like what, what do you, like you're painting? Like I, I looked you up, like you're amazing. She was like, oh, come by my house. And then like, yeah. I'll give you a tattoo. Cause like I had just gotten my, I, when I first got out of rehab, I got progress, not perfection as a tattoo. Like, walking down to Venice Boardwalk, I was in L.A., saw a tattoo shop, and that was, like, my mantra in rehab, in detox. And I was like, I need to get that. And then, so, she's like, oh, that's cool, you have fresh ink. I do tattoos for fun. I was like, okay. She's like, yeah, just donations are fine when you're new in sobriety. I don't care what it is. So, I'd give her, like, 20 bucks, and she would give me a tattoo. Nice. 
And yeah, that's how I got to let it be so quickly. I was like, hey, I got to do my step three. Can you do let it be for me? <laughs> she was like, hell yeah. That was the first one that she did for me. Nice, man. So um, when did you start drinking? Oh, shit. Well, technically, when I was like three, my, my family was really young when they had me, my mom and my dad. So I grew up in a party house. And I think the joke is I was either two or three and I came up with an empty shot glass and I said more. And I handed it over to to someone, um, wh- you know, whether that's true or not. Like, that's just like my first experience with all that stuff was at a very young age. Um, the first time I drank with intention, I think I was, oh, man, 12. My grandparents had a liquor cabinet and I bounced around a lot when I was younger. I bounced when my parents split up. I bounced between my mom, my dad, and my grandparents. And uh, my grandparents were pretty heavy drinkers, but they were at least functional. Like, they had mm-hmm. jobs, and they didn't, you know, uh, go to jail regularly. And uh, so I got into their liquor cabinet and found, you know, most kids, I'm sure, who end up going down this road learn that they can take a sip off of everything, and it takes a while for those levels to start going down. So they were gone out doing something, and I, I got a couple sips in me, and I was like, oh, oh, this is what everybody – is talking about okay and started doing that I, i'd cop like a little buzz i never got drunk off it but i did get to the point to where the levels went down enough i started to have to fill them up with water and um it was funny my grandma's like she said something like you know if you're gonna drink all my alcohol could you not put water in it and i was gonna say <laughs> like she knew right away like she <laughs> they're gonna notice like, regardless like, yeah, it took it took a minute for her to get to that point, but yeah, her reaction wasn't like, "What the fuck's the matter with you?" It was like, "Hey, could you not, you know, ruin? Down. Yeah, could you not ruin my my cream de menthe?" Um, but you Funny, know, so yeah, I was it's really, I didn't steal yeah. liquor too. I, Captain and Coke was like my first drink at eleven, and we would watch The Outsiders, my friend and I, and he would sleep okay. over my house, and we would steal Captain from the basement, pour a little yeah, bit, that's... and make a Captain and Coke, and. Yeah, we would get a strong buzz from it, and we enjoyed it. And but I never wanted to put water in it because I figured then it would be more noticeable, as opposed to they would be like, "Oh, I don't remember the last time I drank. I was drunk." So I never wanted to like put water in it because I was afraid that would be more noticeable because the taste would be so different. Yeah, well, I only watered the rum. All right, I mean, I didn't water the oh, rum. Okay. That's what they drank. The rum and cokes. They, they lived on that shit. So yeah. I only watered like the mixed drink stuff. But they had a friend over and they figured it out. Ah. <laughs> somebody who didn't drink rum and cokes, and so I, you know, the jig was up. But yeah, uh, it was shortly after that. It wasn't very long after that, maybe fourteen or fifteen, that I got my first drunk. And it was at a small party with some friends. Um, they had 151, which was, you know, pure nightmare fuel yeah. for somebody first drinking. But, man, all I remember is, like, that that hit, that feeling of, like, warmth spreading all over my body. And it was a girl that had given me the drink that I was having a hard time talking to. And then all of a sudden, I, I didn't have a hard time talking to her. And, you know, I just felt, I felt so comfortable all of a sudden. And that's the biggest you know, that's the biggest thing I remember is like, oh, I feel really comfortable with this. This is, I don't feel so anxious anymore. I don't feel so out of my element. Um, I didn't go after it hard after that, but I definitely, that, that feeling stuck with me. So when it was time to drink, I was, I was all about it. And so is that when you, you really took it out of hand or I you were just somebody a, who partied or? I, it was a little more of just somebody who partied because I was still living out in Sandy with my grandparents. And then um, when I moved back to Portland, because that's the kind of area that I lived in, Portland, Oregon, um, 
I met like this whole crew of just dirtbags that were just dirtbaggy like me. And uh, we sort of, we went, we went at it pretty hard. You know, I, I had gotten drunk a couple times with the help of my father who thought, you know, as long as you're drinking at home, then that's fine. Um, so he'd buy me alcohol every once in a while. And that was, that was a different kind of drinking than what we ended up doing with my, what I ended up doing with my friends. That kind of drinking was we'd get up in the morning, hungover, barely able to move with the full intention of the only cure for this is to get more alcohol. And then to go, you know, I'm 17 years old going out there. We're trying to find how, whoever can buy us some more liquor. That was our whole mission. And, you know, it didn't matter if we worked or not. If we worked, then while we were working, someone else's job was to make sure we got alcohol and they'd be there before whatever I was doing closed. Wait outside the store for the homeless guy. Give him an extra five bucks. Yeah. Well, yeah, whatever, whatever it took, whatever it took, or if we could, we'd steal it. We couldn't steal hard stuff, but we, you know, we did plenty of beer runs as kids. Mm-hmm. And then when when the drinking got to a point where that was like our lifestyle, we started just sort of migrating. It became like little little nomads taking over living situations. You know, I I didn't know how to connect with people. My my parents were fucking basically sociopathic with me. Like they barely acknowledged my existence unless it was of a direct reason you know my dad had forgot my mom and my dad split up my dad would forget my birthday he'd forget the you know he'd forget that he made plans to come see me so i had that kind of abandonment bullshit to deal with my mom went down a different road she got super heavy into meth and just couldn't be bothered with me um, and then my grandparents were you know they were stable but my grandpa did not know how to talk to a fucking 14 13 year old kid He'd yeah. say real, he'd get real drunk and he'd say real derogatory shit to me. And my grandma wasn't emotionally available. So while I learned little lessons from them, I learned real bad ones too. And so as I got older, as a teenager, I just gravitated towards anybody that would fucking listen to me, essentially. If they gave me attention, then I was like, okay, cool. I'm fucking, I can take this person hostage, never let them go. Mm-hmm. So this little group of ours, you know, when drinking came on the table and that became just how our, our life was, I just embraced it 100%. And found that, you know, they were they were co-signing all my bullshit. So as much as I was needing this alcohol now to to feel normal, like it became my new normal. They they were they were feeding into it by by up in the ante. You know, it was now a contest to see who could outdrink each other. It was just a part of our daily life was to just go out and get more alcohol. So in- did any of them resent you getting sober? Like I know people I partied with growing up. Like when I told them I'm an alcoholic and I got sober, they were like, "You're not an alcoholic. I could out drink you, and I'm not an alcoholic." Yeah. Uh. So this this was back in high school. It's a long time ago. They they resented me for a, a very vastly different reason. Uh, okay, you'll get to that. Maybe. Yeah. They they you resented. Can. I mean, our drinking got to the point to where you know blackouts were regular. This kid that I got real close to, he um. Him and I had like just this off and on again thing. Like when we were sober, we were best friends. Like we were right on the same page. And then when we were drinking, it was it was like I didn't like violence, so he was always pushing that button, trying to get me to fight him. And um, but I'll, at the same time, like he was really comfortable around women. He was really good with women. He was really good with other people. He's very outgoing, very gregarious, good-looking dude. And I just became obsessed with wanting like what this guy had. And what I started hearing in the background though was that. Like, while he was good with women, he was very aggressive with women. He was very pushy. He'd get drunk, and he wouldn't hear no. And, and that started to become the story that we were hearing. And uh, we confronted him a few times, and he denied it. 
you know, when it's your best friend and you're a bunch of little scumbag kids, like it's easy to just like, okay, we believe you. And, uh, we were at a party and someone that I knew that I was really close with, you know, I either overheard or she said it directly. I can't remember. I was, I was, it's pretty foggy. The whole thing's pretty foggy. Yeah. Uh, we were at a birthday party and she said something along the lines of, it's okay. He was drunk. And I don't, I didn't have any more context. Maybe I did and I don't remember it, but that's all I needed. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to, it's, it's over. It's go time. So I waited till he wasn't paying attention and I, I, I stabbed him. I, I decided I was going to just end things. I was going to take his place. My brain was so fucked up at that moment. Like there's, there's stories where I was like pacing in front of him and I was like talking to myself and I just was like mud, muttering and I was talking to different voices and like just completely on a whole other level. And I, I remember briefly thinking if I, if I do this, if I kill this guy, then I can just take over and everything will be fine. Like in my brain, I thought that if I did that, then everything, then I wouldn't have any repercussions to face somehow. Like it was so easy to kind of like mafia rules. Like you kill Uh, the boss and you become the boss. (laughs) Yeah. Or it's schizophrenic shit. Like, I don't know, man. It was, it was, it was not, it was obviously not sane. It was obviously not normal. I mean, you were drinking hard every single day. Your brain wouldn't be right. Lots of, lots of LSD. But despite all that, like I wasn't doing anything to fix any of the issues that were swirling around inside my head. And so that culminated into me doing a lot of harm to somebody. And, uh, you know, I went, I mean, so I, I stabbed him, and... Where did you stab him? I uh, stabbed him in the throat. Okay. Uh, I stabbed him a couple times, from what it sounds like, and this is all blackout fog. Um, and, I mean, I've talked about this with other people, and they're like, you're kind of cold about how you tell this story. And it's like, well, No, it's, I don't it, think so. To me, it's a story. Like, I have yeah. never had that emotion. My emotional connection is to the damage that came after, not to that event, because I wasn't there for it, essentially. Yeah. Um. And then, so, I mean, I was so out of it that when I, I, I have like these little snippets, right. That I do remember little brief windows and I was upstairs in the bathroom. Um, I had my hand under the sink and there's somebody like washing my knuckles cause I had cut my hand somehow. And I remember looking out into the open bathroom and one of my friends was walking by and she was crying. And I just remember looking at her and going, why are you crying? And she's like, you just tried to kill my best friend. You fucking asshole. And I was so confused. I was like, what are you talking about? And I remember feeling that confusion. Like, I remember just feeling completely lost in the situation, like not knowing why I was there, not knowing why my hand was cut, not knowing why this person was mad at me. Just and disassociating. Completely, completely like it wasn't even me. And, uh, you know, I remember being like getting my blood drawn for the alcohol levels and they wanted to take toxicity. And then I remember being in, uh, in the detective's office. And the first time I was in there, I remember this conversation we're having, like they're asking me all these questions. And I don't really know why I'm there. I can't like place why I'm there. They asked me questions about the, the kid. And I remember answering the questions and being really confused by why they were asking me. I was like, why are you, why are you asking me so many questions about me? Is he okay? And they're like, what do you mean? Is he okay? You stabbed him. And I was like, I fucking did not. I was incensed. I was like, there's no way that I did that. And I got super mad and like started throwing shit around and kicking stuff and and they they had to take me out of there and then they did this a couple times and it wasn't until like the third time that i was in there that i knew why i was there and stuff was finally starting to get a little clear and um but wait didn't did he not like was he not aggressive towards females 
So the, I mean, from what we understand, yeah, you know, okay. that person that, uh, but I'm saying that I didn't have proof, you know, I didn't have, no, like, you were just going on that and just all like, it took, yeah. and that's how my drinking got to be where yeah. all it took was like, I'd hear a snippet and I'd fill in the whole story and I would yeah. give a backstory in like a millisecond. And then my entire demeanor would change. And yep. instead of me finding out and then confronting both parties, like a normal fucking adult, I was like, Oh, he raped her. I'm going to kill this guy. And it, you know, it turned out, yeah, he'd been, he'd been aggressive to her and she did feel, you know, victimized by that, but that I'm not a fucking superhero. Like I'm not, you just, you I'm just in, authorities in their yeah, I'm, I'm just some kid. Who, and regardless of if it was true or not, I didn't wait to find out. I had already built up all this resentment and hatred for this guy that I was just looking for that reason, any reason, yeah. I guess, to either be physically confrontational with him, which I wasn't really a, a fan of. I wasn't violent up until that point or you know, I guess to snap and decide that things were just going to end all of a sudden. And uh, so it could have been anything, really. Especially if you, were, if you were never violent until that point, that would have been a stressor, too. That would have been something that would you would have been, like, holding it all down and boiling and boiling and boiling of years of, you know, like you said, with your parents and your grandparents and feeling that neglect. And then you'd be feeling neglected from him. And then, then she's neglecting him, but he's not listening to her neglection. So you would just boil and explode. That would have been a stressor. That would make a lot of sense to me that that would have been your first physical anger altercation, like, and just do that, something crazy, because yeah. you've held it all in for so long that that all yeah. culminated yeah, we, at that moment. That was right. I mean, we had had physical altercations where I had finally returned the favor, but it was super, it was usually really quick, and it was like, just it would you know like there it's was one time the yeah. we're all fighting in the park or something like that and he kept he kept trying to fight me and he kept swinging on me and he kept hitting me and i was like i'm not gonna fight you i'm not gonna fight you he wouldn't fucking stop so i picked him up and threw him on the ground and then that was the end of that like i just i was just like stop like i didn't yeah. i didn't have that mentality of fighting things out you know so yeah which is it was a different ex- that was, you were like what 23 no i was uh hey, shit i was 19 when i was 19 okay Okay, so what happened from there? What was the aftermath? Um, I got well. There was there was about three months where we weren't sure if I was going to get attempted murder, assault mm-hmm. one, or murder. Like we we weren't sure because he wasn't doing very well. So I kind of just was in limbo. And during that time, I got my GED and and was just kind of doing doing what I could to kind of look good for the judge, I guess. Like that's what my lawyer was telling me, and I was just doing whatever my lawyer told me. Were you going to meetings? When they had them, they didn't have them very often at the jail that I was at. Oh, okay. You were in the jail this time. Oh, you yeah. Out. yeah. They, well, could, yeah. they wouldn't let me out. Even if it wasn't a fit. Yeah, Oregon has a, a Measure 11 uh, mandate. So um, when it comes to violent crimes, you have to go through a special kind of board of release, um, which is which is pretty fucked up. Cause it's, so it's innocent, innocent until proven guilty. But you go through this board that determines if you're innocent enough to be let out um, on like you know, wow. some sort of bond. Yeah. Uh, then there's like a pre another bond meeting. So it's going to cost me like seven grand to get out. And that just wasn't something I was interested in. It wasn't going to happen. So, um, and it was going to be super strict supervision. Uh, mm. like I was going to have a monitor and I was going to have to be watched and yeah, you know, yep. like all that. So, um, yeah, I was in jail the whole time. Uh, and yeah, just the meetings were like very sporadic. It's hard to get somebody to want to go into the jail regularly. Um, and sometimes I just wouldn't remember, like I was just in a complete fog 
all the way up until it all the way up until I found out that he was gonna survive. And then I was like, okay, now I can. What happens next? At least there was like that piece. Now, were you like sober, sober in jail, or were you like finding stuff in jail? Because I know it's easy. Oh, I was. It was a cutoff. It was a. It was a faucet. Like the second I went in there, it all turned off. Like I wasn't interested in drinking or smoking or anything. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So now he pulls through. It's like three months later, and he's pulling through. So what happened? Uh, my my lawyer, you know, told me. Well, so because Oregon's Measure Eleven, and even though it was my first offense, um. My interest was I just wanted whatever was the most reasonable. I wasn't trying to, like, get out of anything. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't want to take it to trial. So I was looking for something quick because I didn't want my family or his family to be put through anything else. I just wanted to let's get on to that next step. So my lawyer was kind of a voice of reason in saying, you know, don't just take guilty right now. You'll end up with 15 years and it's day for day. And, you know, you'll be you'll be almost 40 years old when you get out. Like, is that really the life that you feel like you deserve for this? when you could have the opportunity to do good outside. Like he was really good at convincing me to at least try to get a reasonable sentence. So that reasonable sentence ended up being seven and a half years day for day, um, which for me was a blessing. I don't think measure 11 is a good solution to anything. Cause there's no good time work time. It's just, it's just a bludgeon. Anyways, that's a different thing. Um, me not having any kind of, uh, there was no incentive for me to do well in there. My only incentive had to come from me. Like it, it wasn't going to come from the state. It wasn't going to come from, from some counselor. It wasn't going to come from fucking other inmates. That's for damn sure. Okay. Like if I was going to, if I was going to improve my life, it was going to have to be <coughs> simply because I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I tried to do. You know, I tried to just, the first couple of years I was still just trying to survive. My artwork helped with that. I was a scrawny little kid. I was definitely going to be a mark if I didn't figure something out. So, okay. so what did you get into? Uh, I got into art. I got into drawing. Okay. I had a I had a cellmate that was going to get me into tattooing, and I and I did did a little ink while I was there for a minute. Uh, but then we got our our shit confiscated, and then I got shipped out. So, the tattoo stuff got put on hold. But um, I found out I could do portraits, man, and and it didn't matter how big and burly and scary a, a dude was. If you could draw his face next to his mom's face fucking gold you're in yeah yeah it's true (laughs) i started making it and and i'm you know i'm fairly good at holding conversations so i started making friends with people that were fairly high up on different rankings and Mm -hmm. i was kind of switzerland so you know i could draw pictures for anybody black mexican white it didn't matter people just left me alone and uh because I didn't start shit. I stayed out of drama. Like, oh, with Josh. He's going to draw something for me later on. I, I need his hands to be working. You know, I could be, <laughs> mouth, I could be mouthy, but I, I kept to myself. I, you know, I didn't hang out with snitches. I didn't tell on people. I wasn't, like, in the middle of stuff. I started working out. I'm kind of, I'm 6'4". I'm so once I put uh, some meat on there, like, people just let me the fuck alone. Like, even if I was kind of, you know, even if they decided in their head, oh, that dude's a punk. Yeah. They're, they're probably going to pick on someone a little smaller. Like, I mean, I wasn't, I, I defended myself when necessary, but you know, I didn't have to often, like most people just let, let me be. Cause I, you know, I could do something for them that nobody else could. Like I could really, I was really good at drawing. Yeah, because that's something that they can hold on to. They can even post up or send out to somebody that's like they, not They send them out. Yeah. Yeah. I had so. one guy, I had one guy who was a, he was a, he was a shot caller, him and his brother. And they, because they were crimeys, they couldn't, uh, cr- because they were crime partners, yep. they couldn't stay in the same units, wow. right? So yeah. so I I met the one dude, me and him just started talking about something completely unrelated. He found out I could draw, 
And so we had a connection on two different levels from this. Like one was just, you know, we talked business stuff. We wanted to get out and start a business. Yeah. And then we, he's found out I could draw and he's like, can you draw me and my brother and our mom together? And I, I drew this, you know, big fucking portrait and, uh, he was so impressed with it. He was like, okay, you're my dude. And I would, it wouldn't matter where I was, even if we weren't in the same unit or same prison or whatever, I'd get a packet of pictures in the mail. And then the next day I'd get a receipt for like three or 400 bucks on my books and he'd have some instructions. It got to be, and this was like, it got to be where his guards care. No, I mean, as long as it wasn't. Because they don't like tattoos. You can get time at it for tattoos. Oh, you could get a, yeah, certain, but I wasn't doing that. No, No, just doing the art. So it was kind of weird. Honestly, it was because I was, I was really good at it. I think I got a lot of free passes and I got involved in different art, art, projects but you know more on on the so i was doing this portraits for this guy for so long that his mom started to come visit me once a year just to say thank you just to physically say i really appreciate this because visits were such a big deal that she just she made the trip a couple times and i was like that completely changed my relationship with people honestly it was like okay so this is this dude you know beats people up for money basically like he's a drug dealer he's a fucking gang leader uh but I've somehow made this connection with these people where he now wants to get out and just start a fucking business. His mom is coming in just to say, thank you. And my last interaction with people was like trying to kill somebody. You know what I mean? Like there's a big window where I started learning that it it just takes a little bit to do a little bit of good. And then that good starts making its fucking way back around, you know? Yep. Um, But the guard. So it's, it's actually funny. So the more I drew, the more I started getting opportunities in there to apply my artwork as like a job and, and work with faculty and staff members as well as, as you know, the convicts that were in there and their, their families. And um, there was this uh, one prison I got moved to where they had uh, a whole creative arts department. It was like I learned how to airbrush. I learned how to woodwork. Uh, I learned I learned how to oil paint, whatever I could get my hands on. Cause you I was like the Andy Dufresne of your jail. I mean, I had enough talent <laughs> like, on paper when I showed the guy. He's like, yeah, come in here. Whatever. You, we had a little shop that we sold our stuff to, and uh, that would fund our little little shop. So whatever I made had to be sellable. Yeah. He's like, you can do whatever you want. So I start messing around in there, and then um, while I'm while I'm doing that on the side, I'm still making cash doing portraits and stuff. Well, this guy comes, and he shows me this like this coffee painting that somebody did. They'd accidentally spilled some coffee and then he tried making, you know, it was okay. He did like some rudimentary stuff and it fucking light bulb went off and I was like, oh, I can do that. So I figured out how to take instant coffee uh, and do portraits with it, and like real good portraits. And I'm sitting there in my cell. So I smuggled out like paintbrushes and shit from my, my little job mm-hmm. in my boots. I'm not supposed to have these paintbrushes in my cell. I'm not supposed to have, I had like this little tiny like blade. It's like, I don't know, the size of your pinky nail Yeah. that I was using to cut the hairs on the, the paintbrush so that I could customize my brush and, and clean up the edges because paintbrushes are all irregular when they're, when they're cheap. Yep. So I'm in there, I, you know, I've got, I just fixed this brush. I was just using it. I had the blade out. I had the, the brush out on my little counter. I, and I was looking at my painting because, I, I, you know, when, when you're all up close to it, you can't really see it. So I, I set the painting down and I was over by the door. And I had this time to my head with my normal guard. So I knew that I could do this for two hours before the guard did another round. And I'd have to kind of clean some stuff up and then wait for him to walk by and then bust it all out again. Well, that guard was on vacation. I didn't know that. So we had a new guard 
doing just random cell checks, just popping doors to scare the shit out of people. And uh, I'm over by the door. My door pops. I'm like, well, fuck, here we go. Like, there's no way I can explain this. And the dude comes in. He does a little quick lap, but he sees the blade. You know, his hand goes to it. He sees the painting, looks back at all the stuff that's on the table. And he's like, I'm going to need you to explain to me what's going on here. And I told him, well, I'm using instant coffee. You know, I I use the blade to help cut the brush. I know I'm not supposed to have this stuff. I understand it's going to be a write-up. And he's looking at the painting, and he's like, you fucking painted that in here? And he just wouldn't, he just wouldn't allow his brain to really connect with that. (laughs) And then he's like, man, you just keep doing what you're doing. I have a weird relationship with art. Like it was, it was definitely a big reason of of my survival in prison. So I have a connection with it that's different, but I've tried a few times to get back into it since I've been out. And it's just, you know, I mean, I even got into tattooing. I don't know if you can see. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I did that on myself. Oh, that's awesome. And then I just was like, okay, well, tattooing's cool. I'm never going to do that again. Like, it just, <laughs> it's just my brain's weird like that, man. No, but I'm, yeah, so the, yeah, the coffee creative painting, writing that happened for me. Like, I, I, yeah, I, I wrote two screenplays. And then after the, I was done, almost done the second, I was doing the final act, and my hard drive fell out of my computer, and I didn't have it backed up anywhere else. And I just haven't had it in me to write a story since then. And you still have the hard eight, drive? No. It's been oh. eight years. Oh, it's shit. Eight, yeah, it's been eight years. And then I got into doing writing stand-up comedy instead. Because I was so nice. broken. I was even more broken after that. I was like, I just need to be funny. Because I can't write. I was a whole, like, movie about con artists. And, like, on nice. the run and all this shit. Kind of like Natural Born Killers, Bonnie and Clyde, but con artists. Yeah, yeah. And I, am, I, I put so much into it. And then so when it died, I... Like a part of me did, and I haven't wanted to write a story since then. Dude, I understand. I had, um, uh, I got into screenplay writing as well. Uh, there was a guy on the streets that would come in and uh, do like a little creative writing class. I started taking that class, and it turned out he had written a book about screenwriting. And I read the book, and then I started applying it to my own screenplay. And he, he was really, really impressed with like my dialogue. He said I had a lot of work on the other things to do. So I got really into that as well. I hand wrote a whole, uh, 110 page screenplay out with like working with a friend of mine who does metal work to figure out like all the way down to like the jigs on how we were going to shoot different shots that were in my head. Like we, I got super into it and mm. it wasn't a hard drive that failed, but when I got transferred, uh, the, the fucking guards decided to, I don't know, flood a bunch of water got on there and it completely damaged all of my paperwork, all, all my, my, my screenplay stuff, my writing stuff. Like I designed a, a board game in there, a D and D style board game. It just it fucked up a whole lot of stuff. So that that like so, yeah, internal. You, yeah. I was like, well, I'm never writing this shit down again. Yeah. Uh, which because you know, <laughs> she knew you pre that. That's she the, knew that's me the important. That. Yeah, she that's the important during, thing. During she saw like, all she saw all the work that I was doing. Yeah. I led a conflict resolution class outside. Like I was a part of that change. And yeah, so but, that makes total sense that she would feel that way. In her mind, she was seeing that if I'm backsliding and giving lip service to my sobriety, that it's possible all this other stuff is now on the table that I've just yeah. been lying about. So um, now it, I took it the negative instead of me doubling down and proving because I don't understand how to well, I didn't understand how to really take adversity. Um, I took that to me. Well, cool. I'm going to embrace not the violence, but fuck it. If I'm just going to be this vet, this felon, then why even really bother? You know, I left her place. I moved in with my my mom uh, at, you know, fucking 28 years old. Um, and 
that I, I even remember talking to her while I'm talking to her and she's telling me this stuff. I'm picturing in my head the alcohol I'm going to go get. Like back in the day, it was Sparks. I don't know if that's even a thing anymore, but they had caffeine in it. It was Sparks and Four Loco were these just murder, uh, okay. murder beers. It was like 8% alcohol. It was a lager. And it had uh, not a lager. It was a it, whatever it was. It had a uh, it had caffeine in it. I, I in my mind it was like, well, that's what I'm gonna go get. That just came out, and she's talking to me about the fucking you know end of this relationship. Yeah. And like all this serious stuff. And in my head, I'm like, cool, man. This is my, you know, the faucet's back on. Let's go. Let's go take care of this this drinking thing. And I I went back out for ten more years. Like I didn't have any periods of sobriety that were intentional, outside of like here and there where I felt like I was drinking normally, which just would perpetuate it. You know, there would be periods where six months would go by and I wouldn't have any major issues. And then it was always that one time I'd get real drunk and do something stupid, you know, not wreck my car, but like damage something or, and you were living with your mom. I lived with my mom for a couple months and then I moved in with a buddy of mine. And then I were in Portland, right? Yeah. Did you ever get into anything besides drinking while you were there? Well, before, yeah, I mean, like uh, in the last 10, like in that 10 year span, I mean, there's a lot more things that are out now than back, like when you were a teenager and available. So I was really scared of meth. My mom, my mom went after meth real hard. She got to prostituting and was like living on the streets. And so I was, I was fucking terrified. I, I convinced myself that if I did meth, I was going to die. Like it was just going to be like, that was a no go. Same with heroin. Um, but I got into LSD when I was younger, pretty heavily in mushrooms, and okay. uh, I got so into you were no uppers. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, were mostly Yeah, because I, I, I had like a weird relationship with like opiates. Like I had been prescribed codeine pills and and Valiums or uh, Vicodins and shit, and I would just eat eat the whole bottle, but I wouldn't go for another one. Like I I would just yeah. fucking abuse the shit out of them when they ran out. I was like, well, I guess there goes that. I guess that's that. Um, so yeah, I definitely I, I, have yeah, that, okay. like, binge kind of personality, but not always enough to where – I mean, I even did that with Adderall. Since I'd uh, been out, like, I, you know, ate my way through a bottle of Adderall and, yeah. you know, I was like, oh, this is super fun. And then when it was gone, I was like, all right, I guess that's that. So I'm so, very lucky in that regard. Yeah. Like, my my addiction is definitely purely focused in on alcohol. And especially so for ten years and no and everyone's just co-signing your bullshit, you know what I mean, for ten my years. My relationships just... were all over. Like, in that time, I – uh, like three months after me and that girl split up, I got into a long-term relationship where I moved in with somebody and then me and her after a couple of years got married. Like I didn't give myself any time to fucking function as an adult of any way. Like yeah. I tried, mm. I built codependent relationships with other people that were in a better position than me or were in a worse position. Like it was never just, it was never a healthy thing. Like it was just an immediate, you know, when me and that woman split up after we were married for a couple of years, I moved out to Pittsburgh for a job. And then um, shortly after that came back, got right into a long term relationship with no preamble. Like I didn't know any, I, I went to high school with this girl. But in that gap, I didn't know anything about her. But she had a real bad situation. That I felt like I could help. And so I came and saved the day for six years. <laughs> And then realized, you know, just that whole time while I'm dysfunctionally in these relationships, my alcohol is fucking all over the place. And it's just causing all this wreckage, just constant wreckage. And the main thing was I just wasn't doing anything for myself. Like I knew about AA, but I wasn't really, I didn't remember AA, if that makes sense. No, Uh, yeah, exactly. My last, the last relationship in my drinking was with a woman 
that I had met while I was living in Washington, living near Seattle. And uh, she she and I had kind of dated a couple times before I moved up there. And then while I was drunk, me and her were talking and I was like, well, I'm going to come down there and see you. And she's like, well, I have a boyfriend. I was like, well, you can tell me not to, and I won't come down there. And she didn't tell me not to. So I went down there drunk out of my fucking mind, driving all the way from Seattle to Portland. So this is a four hour drive or not four hours, excuse me, two, two and a half, three hour, depending on traffic. And uh, so me and her end up getting together and it was, it was weird that, so now I'm driving back and forth between Washington and Portland, and I'm living two completely different lives. When I'm with her, I'm normal, I'm functional, and I barely drink. And then the whole time that I'm not there, I'm drinking like it's a part-time job. Like it's just something I, I couldn't live without. Yeah. And so our whole relationship was built on this version of me that I knew would exist if I was with her. And uh, when I moved back to Portland in the attempt to you know, start this life with her, I was working retail, and it was just fucking murdering me. Uh, it was a store manager position, so I was making really good money, but I was also working sometimes 120 hours. Like I was, there were times I was sleeping in the parking lot cause we were so short staffed and I was fixing broken stores and I just couldn't handle it and ended up quitting that job. And that put me in a financial position where I had to like leave my apartment and move in with her. And we weren't quite ready for that yet, but you know, that was my choice. Like I can continue to just kill myself at this job or, you know, I'll do that. But at the same yeah. time, like it's, it's going to kill me. So we move in and my drinking ramps up real quick after that. Cause when I was with her, I was really good at controlling it. Not even really thinking about controlling it, but like, so, de- so codependent that I just, that okay, was your I, drinking. I can't drink as much because she might get upset and then she wouldn't get upset. So my drinking got a little, it would ramp up a little bit more and then, oh, she didn't get upset that time. And so it ramp up a little more. And then our relationship got very physically distant where she wouldn't even kiss me sometimes. Um, so I took that as like a green light to fucking add the vodka in there. Cause she could, she would know, you know, she, meanwhile, she's dealing with her own anxieties. She's dealing with a lot of stress. She's dealing with a lot of stuff in an unhealthy way as well. Not drinking, but just not confronting the stuff. And so we were, we were basically roommates at this point. You know, I was hiding down in the basement doing my little craft bullshit, just drinking away. And I realized I was unhappy and that it wasn't going to go anywhere. And so I ended things with that. Uh, but I did it in a, in a really talk. I just moved out one day. Like I didn't even, there was no lead up. I didn't talk to her. You know, I felt that if I made it enough of a, a painful experience, then she wouldn't come after me. She wasn't going to come talk to me. So, and I did that with our friends as well. Like I just isolated. I like made this mental note in my head. I was like, okay, the 12th, I don't know if that was the day, but the 12th, I'm cutting it all off. I'm going to go move out to my grandparents because now they're so snowbirds there's nobody out there they're living in arizona at the moment for you know a few months so i go out and uh take over their house i mean i call them of course but yeah um so it, it the, all the while i'm my drink is tripled you know I, i'm drinking a fifth of vodka and a half rack of uh half case of of beer every night like it's without fail I wake up the next morning, I'd be in a real bad place, real uncomfortable, and tell myself I wasn't going to drink. I was going to give myself a rest. And by the time I got off work, the closer I got to that liquor store, the the you know that changeover in dialogue, like, oh, I feel okay. Like, I, I survived today, I'll survive tomorrow. And I'd get there, I'd throw the cap away and, and just go to town. And I wouldn't. it's not like I would even be doing anything. I would just be standing in the kitchen, in my work clothes, drinking my way through a fifth of vodka, in probably an hour, hour and a half, and fucking 
starting arguments on Facebook. Like that was my life for the last couple months. And uh, I don't remember what led to it, but I, I watched some video on this woman who had convinced her boyfriend to get to kill himself. And it's a fucked up documentary on this whole situation where, you know, this woman definitely did a lot to convince this guy. And he bought a generator and he put it in his car. And that's how he did it. He, he cranked it up and got the exhaust tubes. Uh, and that stuck in my head. And, um, you know, I didn't really know it like actively, but I knew that I was getting to a point to where I was isolating enough to where I could do my own version of this. No one will come look for me, so I, I won't have to worry about suddenly waking up like brain damaged. Like I would just would not wake up. And uh, so, yeah, so I got to the point to where I had isolated everybody. Nobody was reaching out to me. It was like a fucking Tuesday. It was a weekday. I got home and just made the decision. I'm, I'm going to kill myself today. And it was like this night and day kind of feeling. Immediately before that, I was feeling like completely broken and helpless and like nothing was ever going to make anything better because like just life sucks and everything's awful. And then, okay, this is, I got drunk enough where, okay, this is going to happen. And there was like this full feeling of peace that washed over me. Like everything about me just calmed down because I wasn't going to have to worry about bills. I wasn't going to have to worry about hurting people's feelings. I wasn't going to have to worry about working on myself and being a better person. None of that mattered. And once once that happened there was there was like there was like a, a sense of purpose where i was just kind of doing the plan that i had in my head of you know hooking this hose up to this car and get it all rigged up and the whole time i'm like asking myself are you sure about this if there's enough convince you know if there's a convincing no if there's i was kind of testing my own brain here i was like okay if, if there's a voice inside me or outside me or wherever that says don't do this i'm not going to do it and that voice never came. So, you know, still in my work clothes, I got in my car, I hit start, and I went to sleep, fully expecting that I wasn't going to wake up again. And, uh, you know, lucky for me, the car was a piece of shit. Uh, after about an hour, it overheated and shut itself off. So uh, I woke up with just a really awful taste in my mouth, um, smelling like exhaust, and uh, the whole car was fogged up. And I just remember, like, it was pretty immediate. Like I was basically, I felt sober. I woke up. I wasn't, I know I wasn't, but I woke up, I looked around and I said out loud, well, fuck, I guess I have to go to a meeting and, uh, and get a counselor. So I, I sent my boss a text message and was like, Hey man, um, I'm not going to make it in today. I just tried to kill myself. I should probably go talk to somebody about that. And he sends me a message. Like there's like a lot of, there's the three dots for like ever yeah yeah and then the message after that was like okay do what you got to do because i also like it was it was such a quick I'm, my my brain could be pretty quick sometimes so it was pretty quick my brain knew i knew uh, okay if i was just willing to kill myself then i need to i need to not be willing to kill myself and i'm not really sure that i'm at that point yet so i better tell a bunch of people and so i told them i called my friend and i was like hey this is what just happened i need to tell you so that i don't you know so that i know that i'm not going to do this again in a few hours like i failed but i need to make sure that my my mentality has changed around this and that i actually want to live and then i went i saw a counselor i told her all about it she was really weird this is like counseling's just a, a weird thing man the the first thing the lady says is well, I think I should call the police. And I was like, why would you call the police? I obviously don't want to kill myself right now. I just need to talk to somebody about it so I can feel safer that yeah. I am past this. 
if you call the police, they're going to make me go to inpatient, the 72-hour watch. I'm going to probably have to go to a psych eval after that. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to probably lose where I'm living, lose my car. Do you think any of that's going to be helpful to somebody that feels like life's not worth living? And she's like, oh, okay, that's a good point. I can't believe I had to make that to you. Like, why are we having this conversation right now about whether or not you should take everything from me? Like, you should be helping. She's a mandated reporter. She doesn't have to call the police. She's a mandated reporter, too. I just I just couldn't believe that that was her response. And I was like, look, I just needed to tell somebody so that I felt like I was doing my part internally. This wasn't even for you. This is for me to tell you I did this. I don't want to do this. Now I am convinced I don't want to do this. Thank you for being a very expensive person, I could tell. And and like so in my brain, I'm like, wait, so that's counseling. I've already had bad experiences with counselors at that point. Uh, but I went to a meeting and I went to the meeting at the old meeting hall that I went to when I first got out. And sure as fucking shit, that that woman I dated, my ex-fiance, was there. She didn't recognize me because I looked vastly different. I had a beard and I was, you know, bulkier. And uh, they do like a count up. They figure out who's got how much time. Right? Yeah, you know, I know those. One yeah. year, two year. And they got to 15 years or something like that. And she raised her hand. And like, it just, the fucking tumblers came in. It's like, what am I doing? Like, why, why have I done everything but actively tried to actually live a life? Like, why have I done everything outside of just live a normal life? Why do I have it convinced in my head that if I'm not doing these fucking crazy things, that somehow life is not worth it? Like, I, so I, I just, I don't know. I just, I just decided, okay, so I've tried killing myself. I've tried drinking myself to death. I've tried prison. wasn't any fun. I've tried all these other fucking things. So we're just going to do the normal boring shit and see how that goes. Um, I didn't really dig the traditional meetings, even though my relationship with religion had changed. So I started hunting around and I found secular meetings in Portland and uh, tried to just plug myself in. You know, I just got to where uh, I got back. I got back plugged in with my activism groups. I started doing uh, panels and talking in front of people again. I started doing, um, you know, little bit more Activision. There's some very strange type of groups out here now. Like Activision has definitely changed, so I had to kind of relearn some of that. Um, and I just got, I got super into the gym. I started working on myself. Now, my recovery hasn't been, you know, all rays of sunshine. Um, I've made some pretty interesting mistakes in here too, but I just decided to give it a, give it a, a complete 180 of a different try. And it's been a completely different experience since my other two attempts at this, you know, uh, even though it is without God, like my entire recovery has been of quality. Yeah. Like my relationship with drinking is completely changed. It's just not something I feel like it could do my body any good or my life any good. So it's just not something I think about anymore, really. Um, yeah. So I, I started, uh, I started chairing a meeting for the secular group, um, but I found what I found was that while I liked the secular meetings because we didn't just complain about God or whatever, we just shared our experiences. There's people in there that are Buddhists. There's people in there that were atheists like me or mm -hmm. humanists. There's people that were religious. Yeah. While I liked that, and we did have some fellowship, which I really appreciate about AA, it wasn't that something the traditional AA has that I think that just has like a, a patent on is those kinds of people that will notice you're struggling just from a 
fucking cross the room and like kind of harass you into doing something about it. Yeah. And that I know, doesn't I know. work. That's a turnoff for some people, but I guess I got to a point in my life where I kind of, I kind of missed being noticed. Like I missed. It worked for me. It, hey, I didn't, uh, I missed two meetings and this person's sending me a text message. Like, what are you doing? What's going on? Are you okay? I didn't see you at the meeting. Are you going to be at the next one? And that, I was at that point in my life where I kind of needed somebody to be like, hey, we value you here. You need to show up, though, in order for that to matter. I would get, hey, you didn't share today and yeah. then, <laughs> while, while smoking a cigarette because, like, I'm such a talker, you know, like, I I could talk for an entire hour. I mean, I do stand up. Oh, I, I can talk and talk. It doesn't matter. And I started a podcast. <laughs> exactly. You know, we like talking. It is what it is. And so if I didn't share it all during meetings because I was so in my head. Afterwards, I'd be smoking a cigarette, and it was always at the 11 o'clock meetings. That was like, that was my favorite meet. I was going to three meetings a day in LA. I was going, I would go at the noon, I would go at like eight o'clock, and I would go at 11 o'clock every night. Um, and my sober living would let me go at 11 o'clock and come back at midnight because they knew my sponsor was there. They knew I was there. They knew yeah. I, they knew I needed the meeting because I liked ending my day with a good meeting. You know, and so they allowed me to go there every single night, which is awesome, which is breaking curfew technically. But it, it, I got the best sobriety at those meetings. And I remember that, like, there was a couple meetings where I didn't share. And the one, like, dude, he's got, like, 30 years outside. We'd always call each other different names. His name's Marshall. He'd be like, hey, you okay over there, Kenny? You know, because he always said, like, a different name. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, why? He goes, you didn't talk tonight, so you're not okay. What's going on? What's in your head? And every time they just call yeah. it out and just make me talk about it at least and yeah. get it out and you know and that meeting after the meeting stuff. Yeah, I, I'm I'm always there half an hour and still to this day when I have meetings, I'm sometimes there for a half an hour, forty five minutes just chatting. Like we don't end the meetings. Like the other day we went until like nine thirty five because we're not gonna like just we're talking about trauma. We're not gonna just stop the meeting. Like all right, nine o'clock, everybody get out, stop your yeah. talk. No, we kept going. We talked, and it was nine thirty, nine thirty-five when we locked the door. <laughs> yeah, I see. I'd start. I'd started getting plugged into that old that old meeting hall that I was at. But I was dating a girl at the time that uh, I didn't know it, but um, she was sleeping with half the people there. And so <laughs> when the pandemic, huh? You can't do that anymore. Uh, <laughs> no, date, date somebody that's that's uh, half the room. <laughs> yeah, that's slowly thirteen stepping everybody in AA recovery. No, I was I was uh, not interested in that. But also, <laughs> I was just kind of like once when we and her split up, the pandemic hit, and so it was a, it was just like that cut off from that group. Like I didn't know who she banked. I didn't really want to find out. I didn't want to go down the road of like even intermixing with the people that we used to hang out with. So I just like cut that off. And then um, my group wasn't meeting in person and no, no other groups were. So I found that, yeah, I wasn't able to really, I did the online meetings as much as I could. Like I liked some aspect of that. Cause I got into like kayaking and outdoor shit. It's like mm. collect hobbies. And I was cool being able to do like an online meeting on my little phone, you know, and just be out in the middle of a river and be like, Oh, this is a, you know, yeah. sobriety, sobriety. And at the same time, like I was using it, all this stuff as an excuse to kind of distance myself from those kind of meetings, from those kind of people. And yeah. I wasn't reaching out. So people weren't reaching out to me. And, uh, I isolated a little bit during the pandemic and started getting to where I was like, well, maybe I don't need AA. Um, I didn't drink and I didn't relapse, but I didn't grow either. Like nothing was moving forward. So I started really, 
I was I kind of put all the cards on the table. I was like, okay, well, I'm an atheist that goes to AA. I like traditional meetings. Typically, if I share that I'm an atheist, the meeting turns into why it shouldn't be. Um, and if that's not what happens, you know, because people do that kind of like uh, passive aggressive sharing where it's like, well, I found Jesus and he's my only. And I'm like, OK, look, I didn't fucking attack your guys. I'm not a threat here. They do that. That's why I don't go to AA anymore, honestly, is because I was well that and they asked me not to. But because I was talking about cannabis in my recovery in a positive oh, way. Yeah. And I would say pills instead of alcohol. It was one of those home groups that, like, yeah. you can't say, you have to say alcohol. I'm like, yeah, see, and I, I can't, I, I can't like, bother you, with that. Like, you want me to, you want me to say and share about how I drove two hours to get alcohol because I couldn't find any alcohol close by. So I had to sit in traffic and drive two hours because there was no alcohol close by. Yeah. Like, that's what yeah, you want. Yeah, they want you to change. And that's kind of where it was with me with atheism. Um, but yeah, the same kind of thing with like, I would mention outside source, outside substances and they'd be like, look, we, it's singleness of purpose. And I like, well, don't tell me that. And then have me read Bill's story and, and you know, talk about his pill addictions because it, it, multiple people had either addictions to morphine or they yeah. had addictions to pills. They used yep. sedatives, heavy sedatives mixed with alcohol. And like, if they weren't, they weren't even perfect in their sobriety. I mean, was it Dr. Bob was so miserable or who, which one was so miserable like 15 years in that he had to write the 12, 12 traditions? Uh, that was that was Bill. Yeah, he was just miserable. Oh, his right? his depression was real. Now, that's different, yeah. though. His, okay. his depression, he, he was the type that needed to constantly work through his depression. And he was learning that AA wasn't going to help him with that. So he wrote a lot of literature that ended up helping people as a way to help him through his depression. Now, when he passed away, he had dementia and he was begging for a drink. And people use that as a reason why AA is not going to, you know, AA doesn't work because even the founder, well, the motherfucker was suffering from dementia. You ask for a lot of weird shit when you're dying while not really capable of understanding where you're at. But there was um, in early, early, early AA, Dr. Bob, you mentioned that that guy, he was a proctologist. <laughs> so he had a surgery coming up and he was, he had the shakes so bad Um He's like, I'm gonna have to cancel the surgery. He's like, you can't cancel the surgery. Like, it, it, you gotta, you gotta be able to do, you know, for whatever reason, he had to do the surgery. So they fed him liquor before the surgery so that he can calm his shit, and he could go in and do the surgery. And then he came out and he finished his his recovery. You know, he never drank again. But, um, there is all that kind of stuff, and that's where that's where like this the sense of it being kind of culty comes in. And I started kind of bucking up against this, like. I would talk about this early AA stuff. You know, there was two atheists that helped write the big book. There was a one that it was more atheist agnostic and they ended up finding some kind of spirituality, but the other one maintained their atheism and they started a whole group of AA that was all yeah. atheist. They yeah. wanted to make the book about more of the psychology, the moral psychology of the book. Like there's all this history and I would talk about that stuff and people would come after me depending on what meeting I was going to. Some traditional meetings didn't care, but some of them, you know, they'd come after and they're like, we don't really want to talk about that kind of stuff because it'll, it'll, you know, it could confuse the newcomer. Yeah, that's and I was like, I was like, so it's going to confuse the newcomer for them to find out that the people that created this program were human? Like, why would it confuse them? Like, why it would, would it? It makes I, me feel even better, like more connected, like they, like they yeah. can fuck up too they're just normal dudes yeah. this whole program happened on accident it just yeah. happened because a very dysfunctional group of drunk people came together and made it happen and i don't know about you but most meetings are a group of dysfunctional drunk people that come together <laughs> and just somehow make it happen so knowing that that has been like the core element has what that's kind of what has kept me coming back to the the traditional aa because there's something yeah. there 
you know, that kind of just allows that to continue to happen. And that's what actually gave me the confidence to just start my own meeting center and not even like, you know, anyone, you know, you can start a meeting for AA, but I didn't like so many other rules. I was like, I'm just going to start my own meeting center. Yeah. Like instead of my own meeting, I was like, I'm just going for everything. And I don't have literature. I don't have a book. It's, it's all my favorite parts of an AA meeting though. Um, where we just do open discussions, you know, on what we're yep. feeling and how your day's going. And then people can tie it in to how they're doing too. You know, I used to dread doing the book studies, you know, like, oh shit, it's Thursday. It's going to be a book study for an hour. I'm going to be falling asleep the entire time. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I would dread some of the days because you know what you're going to be doing. It's not going to be fun. My favorite parts of the meetings were sharing with each other, sharing about your common things, you know? And so that's, what I wanted to base this on was that because the community, the fellowship, yeah, yeah, it's fellowship, and you know that's what I wanted. So that's why you know we're open over a month now, and you know it's getting bigger and bigger for each meeting, and you know they're not huge, and they're not supposed to be. There's only 20 seats, and it's because I don't want more than like 20 in a room anyway, because then people will feel like they can't talk. You yeah, know? I've been to big, I've been to big meetings, podium, big podium meetings where. Not only does it feel like you're not going to get a chance to share, but then when you do, it's so fucking intimidating. That's you what know? I mean. Like, yeah, my you're nerves afraid were, to share. But I, so personally, I, I actually I, I encourage myself to do uncomfortable things like that because it helps with my social anxiety. But that's that's not just because that's helpful for me doesn't mean it's helpful for somebody else who's finding their 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 social anxiety. And crippled, I have a podium you know? for that too. Yeah, <laughs> I do have a podium that I got, and you know, in case like I like standing at one, or if somebody else wanted yeah, to stand yeah. and like talk. If that's how they're more comfortable is talking behind a podium. We do have a podium in there for that reason. Nice. So, so you mentioned so you mentioned the big book, and I so I had a kind of a similar reaction to that because we'd have a big book study, and I would end up starting to talk about you know my lack of belief, and of course that wouldn't always go over so well. <laughs> no, it would never and, go well. <laughs> um, now, of course, I could do that in a secular meeting, but they didn't like AA literature, so I felt my I found myself in like this position where you have on one hand you have people that. Um, they, they, you know, they go to AA because it's the most popular way of staying sober, or they go to AA because of the fellowship. Smart Recovery doesn't really have that. Like uh, the Life Ring, these other, you know, avenues of sobriety, they don't really have the same kind of fellowship. Like you go in there, it's basically CBT, and you bounce. So people come to AA because they know about it and because of that fellowship. And but what's CBT? In, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's like okay. group, group therapy, basically. Okay. Okay. Go you on. Share your experiences. It, uh, a lot of like diversion uh, programs are now having people do that instead of AA because it's more helpful. And it is a very helpful thing. Like I encourage anybody to give smart recovery a shot just because it's essentially it's free CBT is what it is really. Yeah, it's basically um, what I'm doing too. Yeah, and it's helpful. But I needed that after meeting. I needed people to go out afterwards and, and like those people that are kind of nuisances and sort of harass you to make it to the next meeting kind of stuff. And to just feel like I was noticed when I wasn't wasn't there. And but all at the same time, I was finding that newcomers who did not either were atheists or agnostic or non non religious were having a hard time with the book. You know, the book study would come around and they're like they're rolling their eyes and they're like, I don't understand this, this isn't grabbing me. And I felt like that's you're missing a lot from not reading the book. I think everybody should at least give it a shot just to have a baseline of like, okay, well this is where essentially all this kind of started. Now, I'm not a believer that it's written by the hand of God, because if it was, it's an <laughs> asshole for waiting until 1930 to give all yeah. that information to us. But I also believe that there is 
there is a lot of rawness in there that can be really helpful to a newcomer if they can get over the God stuff. So that, I mean, that was the purpose of my podcast it was essentially just a book study because that's what me and my, my old sponsor would do. But me kind of riffing on my take of the God aspect of it, like, okay, well, they, they're saying God, but this shouldn't be a bad word. Like it's, if, if the word God, if it being in a book is enough to trigger somebody to go drink, then there, there's either the possibility that it's just that strong of an emotional response, that strong of a trigger that hopefully I can help them overcome that or something else is going to make them drink anyways. So, the, you know, that's, I want the big book study to be a fun and interesting thing. Like you shouldn't mm. just dryly read the book and then agree with everything in there. Like yeah. you need to question it. And that's, that's again, that's what kind of makes it feel culty sometimes is you better agree with it or you're going to die. If you don't agree with this stuff, then you're going to die. You're going to die. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to be a real, you're not going to be in real recovery. You'll be a dry drunk if you're not doing it exactly as we've prescribed. <clears throat> and, you know, I don't I don't conform to that. But at the same time, I do see the value of not just the big book, but of going to traditional meetings. And there's there's the fellowship for that reason. But there's also like I want to if I ever made a vacation trip to Italy and I was struggling, I want to know that I can go into a meeting and feel comfortable, even though they're going to be hyper fucking Catholic. Like, and still feel comfortable because my relationship with the word God has changed just as much as my relationship with alcoholism, with drinking mm-hmm. has changed. Like, I don't obsess every day over not drinking. And, and I'm not going to sit in a meeting and obsess over the fact that they're talking about how much they appreciate God. Like, I'm going to be able to survive that is what yeah. I'm saying. And so I'm yeah. hoping to be able to pass that on to other people. Now, if they find their way to smart recovery or they find their way to just abstaining without a program at all or, or whatever, uh, Dharma recovery uh, as a Buddhist style recovery, there's uh, refuge recovery. There's all these other different types. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm going to explore that as well. But I feel like the newcomer being inundated with this traditional material should be able to navigate it and feel like they're not they're not they're not doing something wrong because they're not following it to a fucking T. Like it, yep. it, it isn't how it was, you know, it's not how it was created and it wasn't how it was meant to be. You know, the bottom was meant to be raised. Like none of Bill Wilson's not going to be mad because some kid had a, had a couple bad drinks and a bad experience and decided to get, get sober forever. Like as much as the old timers get upset about that, Oh, you didn't fucking go to jail and you didn't, you know, you didn't kill two people in a car accident. Well, you can't, you didn't earn your seat like that. That shit's got to go. That's got to go. Yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping the yeah. podcast will help with that. You know, I want to make sure that people have the opportunity to hear a different take on this very traditional God religious style text and, and be able to kind of start wrapping their head around it in a way that's helpful because it should yeah. be. I mean, I couldn't stand the way like old timers would, you know, almost try to say, well, their rock bottom is this, like, you know, and compare. And so I, I finally, like, you know, when I started feeling more confident, I'm like, our, our, rock bot- our rock bottoms are the same. Everyone has the same rock bottom. Yeah. Like, it's the day you surrender. You can be sober. It doesn't matter. Your rock bottom is not getting sober. Your rock bottom is when you're surrendering and saying, I don't know how to live my life as a human being. How do I become that? What, how, yeah. do, how do I get what you have? Absolutely. Because like when you're sober and you're still not working on yourself and working on a program, you're still falling. It's not you don't start growing again to get out of that well you're falling down to get out of rock bottom until you start working on yourself. Yeah. Because we're all drinking or using because we're broken in some way and we're trying to fill that void. 
So now we have to be humans and adults and just figure it out without the substances because the substances weren't the answer. They were just distracting us from finding an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. The rock bottom is when you finally decide that you're going to actually start recovering. Yeah. They you surrender. The day you surrender yeah. to the program or the day you surrender to a higher power, whatever you want to call it, you know, yeah. that's like, you know. There's plenty of people bottom. that have reached a different rock bottom in sobriety. Absolutely. Because they stopped yeah. doing that work. Yep. Yeah. And it doesn't, it, the recovery doesn't mean like recovering from just the effects of alcohol, you know, all, all the stuff that came with that alcohol. So yeah. where can they find your podcast if people are listening to this and they want to check out your podcast? Oh, it's called An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. It's a little on the nose. Yeah. Um, it's on all the it's on all the platforms. It's on Anchor. I have a Facebook group. Uh, you Google An Atheist Reads the Big Book, you're going to find it. Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, it's on Spotify, and uh, I think I got it. It's not on Podbean yet. I haven't started an account with that. It's on CastBox, uh, Google apple it's on all all the major one but you, you know you can google it and find it and uh i'm on twitter uh, an atheist in um i'm most active there so you know folks okay. can definitely reach me there um and hopefully i'll have a little bit more of a reach and be a little bit more active in other social uh do you, as well. do you talk to anybody like when as you're going over it together or do you just like go over like a chapter or something like each episode or for because, now, it's just it's just me. Like I'm just okay. going over it. Uh, so I start the episode with like a little bit about if there's a, a an event that's occurred. Like I recently had my sponsor go out and start drinking. Mm. So I start you know I start able to talk about that a little bit, and then I go through a book. It's called The Daily Stoic. This is like my morning kind of meditation thing. Okay. You can see that. Yeah. And uh, so it's 366 meditations on wisdom, perseverance, and the art of living. And so it's it's just stoic readings from Seneca. Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. Some of it's got the word God in it, and I usually, I don't really care. But yeah, um, it just gives. Even if I don't really agree with like their, so they'll. It's a little snippet of one of their little meditations, one of their their famous quotes or sayings, and then it's a little paragraph or two from the authors and their kind of take on what that means. And sometimes I don't necessarily agree with that, but it always gets me thinking about something a little different. And so I start the episode with that. And then I go right into the reading and I don't just dryly read the book. I, I stop pretty, pretty frequently, honestly, mm. um, and go over either my thoughts on a certain part. Like yeah. when they, when they mention the word recovered with an ED, you know, I've mentioned that, like, look in the book, they felt that this was their possible. They thought they were going to be fully recovered as long as they did this. Like, and if you say that word in a meeting and you're going to fucking, you're, you're potentially going to get kicked out. The problem is, is that they say it like 17 times in the book. They say the word recovered because that's what they felt. They felt they were recovered. They had so much faith in this program. They felt they were never going to drink again. So they felt they were done with that. They were recovered. It's not until after, you know, the next generation of AA folks got a hold of it. And they're like, oh, we're in, we're in active recovery for the rest of our lives. And they made it this, like, you better drill that part down. But the, the original members were like, okay, well, we, we figured it out. We're not going to drink anymore because we found, found this program. And honestly, when people ask me what my belief system is, if I don't have a God, that's what I believe in is the fact that these people got together. They told themselves they were recovered because they believed that this program works for them. They had so much faith in the long term of how this program worked that they could feel recovered. Like that's where my belief in this comes. I guess if there was a quote unquote yeah. power. So, yeah, I've, I've been in meetings where I've said the word recovered and people have given me that sidelong look. And I'm like, yo, it's in the book. It's in the book a lot. It's not just one time. It's in the book a lot. So, I mean, you could be mad at me, but. 
No, and I front, didn't. Like... I didn't know that. I didn't know it was in the book. I need. Oh, if, I, if, I knew, it, if I knew, if I knew in the like now, that's that's sticking right here for next time. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I love knowing that. It's yeah. in there a lot. It's in there a lot, and it's in there for that reason. It's not in there because they. I mean, that's kind of so. Are that's you the like, kind of person that you like to say things that you know is going to like not trigger somebody, but like get a reaction to where you can teach like a teachable moment. Like, do you anymore. say do you raise do you say recover to, to get the reaction though? Not to get the reaction. I try not to. I but try not to you? be. Inst- I try not to be. Oh yeah, in the past. Okay. Sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, my relationship with that stuff is definitely changed. I'm okay. trying. I try my best not to instigate. Now okay. that doesn't mean I succeed. I'm not perfect, <laughs> but uh, yeah. no, I try not to. If I do share that, now there are times where if I if I feel like somebody's saying something harmful in a meeting, that's just like find God or die kind of shit. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna re- react to that in a way that like oh. I try to keep it without being obvious if I can help it, but I try to remind like, hey, I'm an atheist. I'm in recovery. This is my story, and I, I come from that place, so that other people can hear just at least another side of it yeah. without attacking that person. But it always comes across that way. Everybody no, always goes back. It's, like I mean? it's kind of a passive aggressive share sure. to kind of to kind of condescend them, but passive aggressively condescend somebody because you're trying to be respectful. But at the same time, you want to make sure that this newcomer knows that they're not a piece of shit yeah. and they're not just going to die just because yeah. they're not going to say God. Yeah, like, sorry, there are yeah, other yeah, ways to other, go about this, so absolutely. you get some hope. And I think that's good because that's the whole point of a community meeting is that you hear different perspectives. You have the person that needed Jesus or they were going to be dead, and you have the person that needed to be further away from Jesus as possible, and then you'd be alive. Yeah, well, you know, someone will come up to me after a meeting and ask me. It almost happens, uh, it depends on how religious the meeting is. But almost every time someone will come up to me and be like, so you haven't found God yet, huh? And it'll always be the yet. Like, they'll always throw, like, a little thing in there, and they'll start challenging my belief, and then they'll ask me why I don't believe and blah, blah, blah. And I'll, I'll usually end it, like, we'll have a little bit of a back and forth, and I'll be like, you know, the difference is, is I haven't gone up to a single person after any meeting and asked them why they believe in God, and I haven't challenged a single person at any meeting on why their belief isn't going to work for them. Yeah. That's the difference. And if that's the type of thing that happens when I do believe your version of this religious experience, then I don't want that. That's not what I don't want to have... I don't think I want to believe in a in a, a deity that requires its foot soldiers to constantly drill into other people that they better believe or die. You know, yeah. that's that's just not how my brain is going to work. I wouldn't want to support that anyways. But that's the biggest, like, I guess, I, the biggest difference. Like, I might speak from my own experience, but I'm not going to try to do it in a way that's like, you all are stupid. I'm not going to start the meeting or start my share with like, well, you guys believe in a thing that doesn't exist, so... That's, you know, I don't, I don't try to do that. Now, yeah. a younger me, that was the different, I was very, very, a very agitating kid. Man. I was a very shitty, shitty, you know, non-believer. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's not how it comes across. That doesn't mean that sometimes I don't throw a little heat on there if I feel like someone's being really harmful, you know, to somebody else's recovery. Especially if it's somebody that you've seen them share, like, in a way that was harmful before, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot of people sometimes in meetings where you're like, oh, my God, he's talking again. Because you know it's going to be something negative about whatever, yeah. the, you know, somebody we just talked about. They, they're they the holier than thou, and whatever they Absolutely. said, you know, it goes to them. And, you know, you yeah. hear them share once a day, and whenever they share, it's always, like, something harmful and not really helpful. And so every time, like, and then whenever they agitate me, at least, I would then want to share on something I knew was going to agitate them. 
And I would specifically say, yep, so I was thinking about pills, you know, and specifically say pills instead of alcohol. And I would talk about how, well, good thing I had cannabis, though, because it really, it took me and it made me feel better again. And that was the whole point of having that to save my life. Because yeah, yeah. that, I mean, I guess... and then, you know, I would, I would, I would, because they were telling me, because they were just getting, it was so, I, I went through culture shock with like AA. Because in Los Angeles, it was so open. Oh, you yeah. know, we read, we read a portion of chapter four at every meeting, or chapter five at every meeting. I love that's the progress of perfection. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and uh, how it works. And I, I love the fact that they embrace Cali sober. You know, because, like, I had no intentions of going to AA when I found the program. Like, I, I got not tricked into AA, but, like, I went to rehab to learn how to use cannabis as a medicine and to stop using pills every single day. Yeah. Know, that's why I went to rehab. And yeah, I had a 20-year rocky, really bad relationship with alcohol as well. And it was, you know, detrimental to me a lot. But not as detrimental as pills were. But anyway, I went to rehab with the intentions of stop doing pills every day and learn how to use cannabis responsibly. And then you get into rehab and it's like, hey, you're always going to be in the house unless twice a day you'll want to go to outside meetings. So the only way to ever get out of the house was yeah. to go to a meeting. So you, you kind of look forward to noon and eight o'clock because you get yeah. to leave and go to a meeting and talk to other people besides whoever's living in your sober living or your rehab or whatever. So you get kind of tricked into, you know, finding fellowship that way and that kind of right. community. And then if you're like me, who was trying to be clean, I'm hearing these stories and I'm relating and I'm like, I do have a bad relationship with alcohol. OK, then I'm not going to drink. But cannabis was still in my plan. You know what I mean? So I just didn't want to drink because my relationship. Cannabis with me has always been an innocent bystander. Whenever it, I, oh, yeah. it was around with me, it was because it was just there. It was never the cause or anything. I used to even do a joke about it when I did stand up about like whenever you watch cops, cannabis is the innocent bystander. No one's ever calling and saying, my husband just smoked a fat blunt and he started hitting me in the face. Yeah, no, right. it's they were drinking or doing drugs. Oh, yeah, there's weed there, you know, but cannabis was never the phone call. Well, unfortunately, know. it's a casualty of the, the, the war on drugs, you know, the gateway yeah. drug. Like it's been labeled the gateway drug and memed to death that, yeah, you know, the, the people in the meetings that are giving you a hard time about smoking cannabis are over there. I don't you know, even well, I mean, if, if that was yeah. the case, they're over there blasting their way through a half a pack of cigarettes, which is one of the most addictive stimulants on the planet. And, and, then, and then washing that shit down with coffee, like, you know, humping half a half a bag of sugar yeah. in there. And they're like, ah, you should you shouldn't smoke weed. That's, that's going to make you. Yeah, that's going to make you drink. I mean, it's like, <laughs> no, I mean. These same so, people can be prescribed over-the-counter prescription medication for their anxiety and be fine with it because pharmaceutically, that's allowable. I was like, you're telling me that somebody in here can get a prescription for Ativan and take it as prescribed, but I can't get a prescription for cannabis and take it as prescribed, right. and it's a Somehow, difference? Like, Ativan, I can't take responsibly. I'll take the whole entire bottle if somebody's yeah. trying to catch a feeling. But cannabis, I don't have finance. that. Yeah, I'm, I'm well, I was, Benzos was one of my things. Yeah, sure. Xanax I had a horrible relationship with. Like uh, oxycodone, yeah, I, I lost control. But Xanax, like I blacked out horribly, and I yeah, did dumb things. Yeah. Every time I got arrested, it's because I was stealing while I was on Xanax. It was never stealing on oxy. I never yeah, got my, caught by my family or friends being high on oxy, even though I did that every day for nine years. 
didn't get caught with that. I only ever got caught when I introduced Xanax with it. That was always that got me in trouble with the cops, with family, friends, loved ones. Xanax. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but yet you can be prescribed that and take it as prescribed and come to a meeting. But yet you wouldn't even know that I was on cannabis unless I wasn't just so honest in my program that I talk about it. So you're upset that I'm just honestly talking here and you got sober in 1965 and cannabis was different then. And you called it weed and can't smoke it because you don't know how to smoke it. Right, the dare program in the '90s, like the the war on drugs, has done so much harm to something that can definitely help a lot of people. Like I, I the only reason why I don't smoke is because it is a gateway drug for mm-hmm. me. I would be smoking it not to help with anything because my anxiety is manageable now. Like there's a, I'm managing those things. Yeah. I'd be smoking it to get high, so I don't do it. But my my girlfriend smokes it because it does help with her anxiety, and I've seen that the the benefits of it with people who. You know, I had a friend whose mom went through uh, chemotherapy and cancer treatments. They were prescribing her morphine, and it was fucking her up. It was fucking her system up. She couldn't eat. And then my buddy's like, well, let's fucking smoke a joint. And so she smoked a joint. It was complete night and day. Pain management was, uh, was, you know, was suddenly tolerable. She was eating healthily. She actually had a good time. And and it was was a a much healthier alternative than the the prescription. So, I mean, I get kind of why they might be scared. Right. Yeah, but that's exactly. all built on like old school bullshit fear mongering. And that's you know? the whole the whole point of learning how to change your relationship with cannabis. That was what my rehab was about. Like, I don't I don't I don't even smoke like my wife smokes. She has extremely high anxiety and she has attack like anxiety attacks all the time. And instead of popping an Ativan, she'll smoke. And that makes her yep. feel better, you know, because it's instantaneous. I don't actually use it for that. My brain functions better when I use it in microdosing throughout the day. So I just have little tablets. I take them with my blood pressure medicine, you know what I mean? Three times a day, a little bit here, a little bit there, and then a little bit bigger at night because I got horrible insomnia since I was eight, where I just can't go to sleep and can't stay asleep since I was eight years old. So that's not even a drug-related thing. It's just a sleep-related thing for me. So without that, I would be on tramadol or or trazodone for sleep, I think. You know, where you just feel groggy. I might as well be drinking if I'm on transit yeah. every night. That's Fuck how I Ambien? felt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you might as well be drinking if you're taking those because that's how they make me feel. Yeah. It's groggy and horrible. Well, I don't feel that with cannabis. And my brain works better with it. Like, if I don't have it, it doesn't kill me. There's sometimes I don't have it for a week, you know, because I just don't have the money and I just don't have it all week. And I yeah. literally get dumber. I don't record podcasts because I can't talk. And, you know, I can't have a conversation. I can't make, um, I can't relate anything. I'm just like not here. And, but when I use it, I'm just, I'm sharp. I'm able to talk, able to hold a conversation, I'm able to write, think, act, whatever. And I didn't know why. I thought maybe I was addicted, you know, at first. Honestly, I thought, oh, great. Now I'm addicted to this, you know, because it's just something I noticed in sobriety when I changed my yeah. relationship. I'm being more self aware and I'm paying more attention. And I honestly would challenge myself and I would think about it a lot. Am I addicted to this now? And it wasn't until um, a, like a year and a half. I was right around 18 months sober and I've been using cannabis the entire time, but responsibly, but still like in the back of my mind, I might be addicted, you know? And Seth Rogen was on Howard Stern. And I remember it vividly so well. Howard said, um, hey, Seth, you smoke every day, all day. Like, are you addicted? And he was like, are you addicted to your glasses, Howard? 
And he was like, what are you talking about? He goes, I need these to see. He goes, yeah, and I need this to think. Without that, my brain is all foggy, and I, I'm not sharp. I can't write. I can't really even talk or have good conversations. So I use it throughout the day because it helps my brain actually process and think, and it makes me who I am. So, you know, asking me if I'm, a, you know, addicted to it is me, like, asking you if you're addicted to it. Just because you can't see my brain doesn't mean it's not a muscle that needs some help. Just like your eyes need help or something needs help, this needs my help. And I was like, that's it. That's, that, that's how I felt. And I, I need an explanation that made sense that I wasn't an addict and that was just medicine that helped my brain function because without it, it's foggy. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, you know, it, addiction really comes down to, is it making your life unmanageable? Yeah. It is what you're doing making your, and that's why, like Russell Brand, can apply that to anything. Like you know, yeah. you're you not. Got... I mean, you could watch porn every day, but is it getting in your, the way of your relationships? If it's not, continue to watch porn every day. Like there's did no you reason watch that to make. I did. I no, did I'm not I did the full one. No, I watched I did an episode with a porn with somebody who was sober um, from watching porn for about 18 months now. Yeah, I haven't watched that one yet. I watched the uh, I watched most of the, the one with the pastor. Uh, okay. And then I watched the, the first couple, like beginner ones, like the, so, the lady that had the the four kids that was oh, yeah. sort of just abstaining. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, but yeah, not the porn. But yeah, I mean, yeah. It, 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 abstain doesn't work because she texted me the other day as she went out again. You know, so abstain doesn't work as you know. You know what I mean? Well, it, can. But, you know, it can. I know, it's, I know it's, folks it's that are. Tough. I know folks that are just they just have chosen I, not to. I mean, you you get to the people like Penn Teller, you know, who has a lot of things to say about AA himself, even though he's never participated in it. And there's people that can quit, but you know, the the main the, and that's well, actually, why I keep coming whole, back to things like AA, man. It's like, yeah, you can quit, but it, it doesn't mean you're making progress. Like I quit, and for a time while I was in recovery, I just wasn't doing any meetings or anything. But yeah. I wasn't finding myself growing as a human, and AA allows me to do that. I'm smart recovery. You might interested in that because they don't care if you smoke weed or, or eat weed or whatever well, it is that you do there yeah, well, but there's you know own, there's yeah. <laughs> there's other ways of doing this that promote for me being in recovery is just free it's free fucking access to all kinds of uh mental health care that i don't have access to because i can't afford it i mean smart recovery is a cbt meeting you've got you know aa for your fellowship and like group therapy shit like you got all this kind of access to it and that's the part that's missing. People can abstain and that's fine. But if they're not doing anything beneficial for themselves, it doesn't have to be a meeting, but if they're not doing anything, yeah. then they're just, that's where to get the, the dry drug from. They're, yeah. they're just somebody who's not drinking. Yeah. They're still an asshole. That's, that's fine if that's working for them. But it's if their life is continuing to, to stay unmanageable, yeah. right. Then there's other things they need to look at. Yep. The, um, that guy, he, he was in the middle of the country, middle of nowhere, trying to get, you know, trying to stop watching porn. And so meetings aren't like in a city, you know what I mean? If you're yeah. not in a city, there's not like a lot of, especially for sex anonymous. Oh, you can't, yeah, you can't go to just regular meetings as a sex so, you, you can, but you can't really share, <laughs> you know, you well, can't really yeah. start talking about that stuff. And hey, then yeah. SA meetings are weird too. I've been to a couple of SA meetings and I, that's a tough one. You know, he that's a, because AA and CA, those were his two okay. meetings that uh, helped him. CA, um, Cocaine yep. Anonymous? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, those two meetings actually were the meetings he went to regularly because they were every day. So he could do 90 and 90, and he could actually learn something. He just had to say alcohol. He's like, I just had to say alcohol instead of porn. So, but all the behaviors were the same. 
He goes, it was, yeah. everything was the same. I couldn't believe how much I related. He goes, the only difference is, you know, their bodies had been, you know, through a lot. My body had, you know, he was addicted to the point. He wasn't addicted to sex. He was married the entire time. Um, but, you know, in that marriage, she like shut off the computer from him. You know what I mean? He couldn't do anything yeah. with the computer. He was stealing cash from his restaurant that he was working at to buy magazines. Yeah. Because he was that hard up to watch porn. Yeah. And that's the insanity, and that's that's the disease. That's the life's unmanageable. You're still hit your that job. dopamine. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So that's it's anonymous. That makes sense. It sucks that you have to. I I do not agree with the fact that he felt like he had to uh, substitute the word like that. That that just comes back to the whole atheism thing and and having to substitute. Well, don't talk about the fact you're an atheist. Just use God while you're at the meeting. I fuck it off. I will not. Like that's I'm not gonna change my identity for you for an hour just because it makes yeah. you uncomfortable that I'm not conforming. And and I hope I hope he finds a meeting or, or a support group that allows him to actually be authentic in who he is and say what he's addicted to and not be judged because there's like fucking rules that well, nobody and I talks talked about. to him about that. And he said the nice thing is I'm eighteen months in now so I don't need a meeting every day so I can hit the SA meetings. And actually talk and chair a meeting and feel like I'm contributing and being oh, a secretary, yeah, nice. you know, because now he has some time and now the COVID's lifting. So there's more meetings that popping up again. So yeah. he's able to actually hit, you know, the one meeting a week that's SA and feel good for the week. You know, he's not somebody that goes every day 18 months in. Yeah. I mean, you know, and there's a big difference between. When you are in a meeting every day, I mean, I already feel it again after a month of going to meetings every day again, because, like, I hadn't been to a meeting really since I left AA at 13 months, or at, I left AA in 12 months. At one year, like, basically one year and a week, I was done with AA. And I drank again at 13 months. All my 13 months from being clean, I drank. Oh, man. And I went and got a six-pack of Twisted Tea, and I poured two out. Saying, I have, fuck you, I can pour them out. I'm not an alcoholic. You <laughs> sure. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I Qual You qualified what you're about yep. to do. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I drank for about nine months, not alcoholically, you know, at the pool, you know what I mean? Or like with dinner, you know, it wasn't like I was being detrimental whatsoever. Uh, my wife had a bad relationship with alcohol for a while before we met and then had had started to get it figured out before we met. And then, you know, she was like, oh, cool, you're sober. And then so she kind of, but then she had nothing. I, she wasn't with me at night I drank, you know, or anything that had nothing. It was just purely, I want twisted tea. And I'm going to grab it. I'm not, I'm just hanging out by myself on a Saturday. You know, why not grab a six pack? And it was like late May. So it was like nice out. You know what I mean? So like, they, yeah. So that was the only reason. And then on <laughs> 229, I woke up hungover. On 229.20. I woke up hungover and I said to her, I'm not supposed to be hungover. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm officially quitting drinking again. She's like, okay, I'll quit with you. And I was like, okay, cool. Because I want this to be my, you know, drinking sober date, you know, because it's only four years. It's a leap day, 229. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. Like, now we have a leap day. But like, if anyone ever asked me recovery, 425, 2018, because that's the day my life stopped being unmanageable. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, because, yeah, I drinking is part of my story and it's part of my it's part of my recovery. You know, without that nine months, I wouldn't have just stopped on my own. I needed to stop on my own. Like I said to you earlier, I had no intentions when I went to rehab to stop drinking. I went for pills and to learn how to use cannabis. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I got both of them. And so that's why I was like, let's see. So once I woke up hungover, then I, my, my, I, I stopped drinking again for me, not because I had to, because I was in rehab and I had to go to AA. You know, this was more yeah. of a conscious decision. So, but still, when people ask me, my recovery date is 4 18 because that's the day my life stopped being unmanageable. You know, and then when we talk more, you know, I'm very honest about that nine months stint of drinks here and there. But yeah. there was never like crazy, you know, I never got a DUI, no fights with, you know, my wife or anything like anything crazy, nothing stupid. I wasn't being reckless, you know, if I bought a bottle of jacket lasted me, you know, two, a week or two, you know what I mean? You know, yeah, yeah. so, yeah, it wasn't out of hand, but just I drank, I think, a whole bottle on a Friday night. And then I woke up hungover, and I was like, nope, fuck yeah. this. Like, hey, hangovers know. suck, man. I don't miss hangovers at all. Yeah. And... I had I had a similar conversation with my sponsor, because we, we talked about, um, I started using, uh, when I got super into fitness, I started using testosterone, and it wasn't prescribed, but I, you know, I wasn't using it as a, I wasn't blasting and, and cruising or doing anything crazy. Yeah. I was just using like TOT therapy, but I was doing it unprescribed, and I was doing it like without a lot of knowledge. But, um, you know, we, me and him talked about it again recently and he's like, so are you going to change? Like, do you feel like you need to change your sobriety date? Cause you were using something that hormonally changed your body in a way that wasn't prescribed and doing it in a way that may have been unhealthy. Cause it, while it, nothing bad happened in my experience, it was all good. Um, you know, he did bring up a lot of good points. So I did, I, I sat down and kind of asked myself those questions, had my life become unmanageable. Did it put me in a position where I was making unhealthy choices that were going to harm me? And some of that was true, but that was more just based on, well, I mean, me just being horny. Like, I mean, I, I couldn't necessarily say that it was the testosterone, yeah. but the fact that I physically I had gotten more attractive from working out and taking care of myself and like cleaning up my look and, you know, putting on nice clothes that fit and then, you know, still, you know, being all muscular and shit like that changed that that changed and then led me to making unhealthy choices but i think i would have made those unhealthy choices anyways like i was just not in a good place with my sobriety and it wasn't because i was taking testosterone that that, that was happening it was because i wasn't really doing the work the right way i was doing the work in in that i was in recovery from alcohol and i wasn't drinking my relationship had stayed i was still going to the meetings and i was still participating but relationship wise like my my thinking was unhealthy in some ways yeah and that had more to do with shit I had to take care of with my counselor. And I did. I got into counseling. I started working on that stuff. And while I was still on testosterone and those behaviors started to change. So, but it was good that somebody questioned that. Like I hadn't yeah. really even considered that, you know, I hadn't really put that up against the metric to decide, okay, well, is this also, does this count? Do I need to change my sobriety date? Do I need to even bring this up in conversations? And I don't usually, but I mean, it's still good in, in recovery especially self-aware of anything is good yeah if you do yeah. decide to start using cannabis as a way to ma manage and maintain it's good to just take a couple like after six months or something kind of put that up against the light and see if it holds and, weight yep and talk about it also with a sponsor or talk about it with somebody else or somebody it. else that's doing it you know what i mean like i've taken people i i helped out somebody that i grew up with that you know he was like four years sober when i i just got sober and after, like, seeing me do it for, like, six months, he was like, how do you not want to do pills? You know, because I knew you. I knew, you know, how do you not want to yeah. do pills? And he was like, can we go through this and can you help me? Because I want to be able to use cannabis. I don't want to have to take anxiety medicine. I want to yeah. use cannabis instead. 
but I don't know how. Can you help me with that? I said, yeah. So, and he's still, you know, to this day, three years later, you know, we did that six, you know, six months since. It's been three years. He's still sober, you know, and he uses cannabis as, you know, a medicine, but, and he has a medical card. Nice. And, and he's sober, you know, he still doesn't drink and still doesn't do drugs. That's awesome. So it all depends on how you're doing anything, you know, and what your mindset is and your confidence. And as long as you're being self-aware and talking to other people, that's what's important. When yeah. you're holding it in and isolating, that's when we start, you know, spiraling. Just it, um, as long as you're not doing harm to other people, man. Yeah. Or yourself. I, pre- I you appreciate know. you spending some time, a lot of time, you know, chatting. Yeah, absolutely, man. And all that, yeah. you know, so, you know. I just realized, man, we, <laughs> we burned through a couple hours there pretty quick.